today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Well, Phil Gursky is with us again. Phil has been a guest on the program for many, many years right now and uh, always a welcome guest uh, with his insights and perspectives on this. He has a new book out, uh, which is called The Peaceable Kingdom, with a question mark. The Peaceable Kingdom? I read it that way. It's a history of terrorism in Canada from Confederation uh, to the present, and uh, it's a fascinating read, and I'm so glad that uh, Phil's got some time to talk to us about the book. Uh, first of all, uh, Phil, welcome back to the program. It's been a while. Good to have you with us again. Yeah, Bill, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. How are you doing? Uh, so far, so good. Uh, you know, I had one year of, uh, you know, home arrest here, you know, doing the show from home. But, I mean, that's that's part of it, I guess. And we're getting there. We're getting there. I'm ready. I've got my sleeve rolled up, and I'm just waiting for that phone call. So we'll see what happens after that. Uh, congratulations on the book. As we mentioned, this is not your first book. Of course, you've uh, had five previous books on this. Uh, the motivation, I always wondered, what, what got you to sit down and said, you know what, i got I got to do another book? Well, Bill, um, you know, going a year without a book, I go through withdrawal, so I figured I have to keep writing, <laughs> although it's interesting you asked that. This is actually the first time since 2014 I'm not actively writing a new book. So, I mean, you know, we'll see what happens. But, you know, Bill, I've ta- you and I have talked about terrorism and national security a lot over the years, as you mentioned. And I wanted to tell the story of our own country, so Canada, which is not normally associated with acts of terrorism. I wanted to show Canadians that, yes, we have been uh, threatened, and we certainly have had people die in this country. And I wanted to tell it from the perspective of the security services. So, as your listeners are probably aware, I worked for CSIS and for CSE for a total of 32 years. And this book is is our story. So, it's, it's my experiences working for the security service, as well as I talked to 30 of my former colleagues who worked as the coal, at the coalface, as I call it, on counterterrorism, doing investigations, trying to stop bad things from happening. And it's a way of, of showing Canadians kind of what happens on the inside when it comes to the agencies in, in which we put our trust to stop terrorist acts from happening. So it's not a, a dry historical book. It's an actual behind-the-scenes look of what it's like to work on a counterterrorism investigation. But you do give some historical perspective. I mean, there are those that might say, oh, yeah, well, terrorism. Yeah, after 9-11, yeah, we've had a few incidents here in Canada. Uh, but as you say, this goes all the way back to Confederation. I mean, with the some of the, well, the Fenians and a number of other things that were happening in this country at that time. Absolutely. And, you know, um, my wife is from the Niagara Peninsula. And back in the 1860s, so before Canada became a nation, we were threatened with real a real threat to our existence as a country when a bunch of American, Irish Americans, wanted to put pressure on Britain to grant independence to the Republic of Ireland by attacking the you know British colonies in North America. Mm-hmm. And there was an invasion in 1866 that almost actually succeeded. And the first act of terrorism occurred uh, not even a year after Confederation, when Thomas Darcy McGee, who was one of the so-called Fathers of Confederation, was assassinated in Ottawa by a Fenian terrorist. So it goes back to our very beginning. So as you said, we you know it's, this is not just a, a post-9-11 phenomenon. It occurred before our first birthday as an independent country. But as you mentioned in the book, and I think it's it's great to get this perspective. So you know you you can't understand where we are now until you understand where we've come from. Uh, we didn't call it terrorism back in those days. Uh, as a matter of fact, the the, the very word uh, terrorism uh, did not find its way into into law here until sometime later, uh, not too recently. As a matter of fact, yeah, after nine eleven. So we treated it differently. We treated it as maybe subversion. Think the FLQ crisis in the nineteen sixties, nineteen seventies in Quebec. That was treated as an, as an effort to actually undermine the state, which is called subversion in Canadian law. And the actual offense of terrorism did not become a criminal one until after 9-11. And as you know, Bill, a lot of things changed after 9-11. We, we, we declared a war on terrorism, which I've t- taken issue with as well. 
But I think it kind of seared itself into the public consciousness, and the and the powers that be decided, gee, uh, in the wake of the deaths of 3,000 people, we need a, we need a new part of the criminal code to deal with this. We dealt with terrorism in the in the 1960s, the 70s, the 80s, and 90s without having an access to that particular part of the code. But of course, nowadays we see many things through the prism of terrorism, which is not necessarily a good thing, but it is what it is. Well, and, and again, we didn't use that word back in those days. But if you look back in hindsight, you know the the, the mailboxes blowing up in Quebec, the FLQ, you know, pattern of doing that. The IRA was doing that, of course, over in the UK at the time. Uh, and then that night, I still remember that Saturday night when Pierre Laporte and James Cross were kidnapped. Uh, and I mean, there was a, a great deal of trepidation, as you recall, Phil, back in those days, because it's it's the same as, as you know with nine eleven. How big is this? What else is happening? Are they taking more people? What? And it's, it was a pretty frightening situation. It's something that we as Canadians aren't really used to. Well, no, you not only that, Bill. You're absolutely right. I mean, I was only, I guess, not quite ten years old when the FLQ took uh, Laporte. And cross kidnapping, but I do remember the time, and I remember Trudeau's famous "just wash me" in yeah. statement about what he would do. But you know, I find it fascinating that you know, a half dozen people died, hundreds were injured in, in bank bombings and in mailbox bombings in Montreal in the 1960s, which of course culminated with the kidnaps in October 1970. I don't know if you saw the, the news last fall, but there are lots of people saying on the 50th anniversary of that crisis, "Oh, it wasn't such a big deal. Oh, we overestimated it." No, we didn't. This was a campaign of violence targeting innocent people that went on for the better part of a decade. And this notion that, that the, the state overreacted by declaring the War Measures Act and suspending civil liberties, okay, we can have an argument about that, but this was a very serious situation that had to be taken seriously. People were dying in the province of Quebec. And no, we didn't know how far they were going to go. We, we, you know, there are allegations that they had, they had uh, links to groups abroad. I mean, in fact, you know, was it... Um, Paul Rose went to um, Paul Rose went to went to Cuba, yeah. <laughs> you know, when he was released. So th- this was a big thing for Canada. We never faced it on that kind of scale before since the Fenian invasions of the 1860s. So I guess in one way, Bill, it speaks um, a lot to Canada. We went a full century before between serious terrorist attacks. That's that's not a bad thing to, to brag about, I think. Talk about the evolution of, of, of the counterterrorism movement here and folks like yourself and CSIS. Uh, as you mentioned in the book, I mean, you're a relatively new organization based on how old the country is right now. I mean, for the, I guess the RCMP really were charged with this, among many, many other things that they were doing. Was it simply a matter that, that the RCMP was spread too thin and didn't have the resources nor the time uh, to pay to this? Well, actually, what happened is that because of certain RCMP activities in Quebec in the aftermath of the October 1970 crisis, the government of the day decided that they needed to take the security service out of the RCMP and to civilianize it. And this was the so-called McDonald Commission in 1981, Mm -hmm. which led the recommendation to create CSIS, which which saw the light of day in June of 1984, a year after I started work at Communications Security Establishment. So the government decided that we needed to uh, create a whole new agency, and there's no question that you know, we were trying to find our feet in those early days. The vast majority of people who were the original employees were former security service members who basically resigned their commission as police officers and became civilians. And they also hired a bunch of, you know, Brighton University graduates to fill the other slots. And uh, we were unfortunately woefully, I think, inadequate and unprepared to deal with the next terrorist threat, which, of course, was the was, was Sikh extremism in Canada. And you know as well as I do, Bill, the attack on Air India in July or sorry, June of 1985 which was the single largest act of aviation terrorism in history prior to 9-11. And as I say in the book, we dropped the ball. We we, we failed. Uh, We didn't stop the attack from happening. Our intelligence wasn't good enough. And as a result, 329 people died. And I don't say that to to blame my former colleagues, but when you work in security intelligence, the the old adage is, 
you're only as good as your last failure. Um, nobody really cares when you get it right, but they, they point fingers at you when you get it wrong. And we got it wrong back in, in June of 1985. And that, that, that something we have to wear. We have to accept that, that, that we didn't do the job as, as well as we could. Part of it was the new agency. Part of it was the times. Part of it was a whole bunch of things. I think we got a lot better as the years went on. We've had many successes in Canada since that time. But that still kind of hangs over your head, the deaths of over 300 people on that aircraft. And how many, we're at least two separate uh, independent inquiries about this. Bob Ray, I think, had the one that uh, that seemed to, to really uh, give the most definitive access to exactly what happened. But, uh, you know, kicking it around there, and uh, it's, it's got to be awfully frustrating for somebody like you in, in, the, in the business uh, to, to see the politicalization of some of these things when, you know, what's really needed here is hard data, and what we got was a lot of political posturing instead. Yeah, you're right. You know, we do commissions really well in this country, Bill. There seems to be a royal commission for just about everything some days. And I'm not saying that, you know, questions shouldn't have been asked and, and, you know, blame have been assigned. But, yeah, those of us that work in the industry, you know, we do the best we can with the resources that we have. We go to work every day with one thing in mind and one thing only. How do you keep Canadians safe? How do you think bad, how do you stop bad things from happening? And, you know, there are finite resources. Uh, there are finite times. There are multiple uh, priorities. And it's, it's, it's interesting we're having this conversation today because, you know, it's been all about terrorism, terrorism, terrorism since 9-11. What about foreign, inter, uh, foreign uh, interference? What about foreign espionage, which we're hearing an awful lot more of? And one thing that, that certainly happened after 9-11, because I was at CSIS at the time, there was a real push to put more resources into counterterrorism. And, of course, when you, when you move resources, you're robbing Peter to pay Paul, which means you don't have as many resources looking at the Russians, the Chinese, the North Koreans, etc., and you never want to be in a position where you take resources from A to B only to see A blow up the next day. So it's a constant balance, Bill. It's a constant juggling you're doing, and you do the best you can with the money and resources that you have. Uh, I don't want to get too deeply into this because I want people to get the book and, and read it for themselves because uh, there's some fascinating stories. And you cover off a lot of the, uh, well, more publicized uh, acts of terrorism, some that were circumvented, some, sadly, that were carried out, uh, including the, the murder of Nathan Cirillo, of course, up in Ottawa uh, a few years ago. And uh, the Hamilton listeners would certainly remember that day and, of course, the consequences of that. But there's a common theme, I said, as I was reading through this, Phil, uh, as you cataloged an awful lot of these, for the most part, uh, CSIS knew of these people. Uh, it's not as if, oh, didn't see that one coming. Uh, you were tracking them, uh, keeping an eye on them. Maybe you could explain to us exactly how that happens, how that information is, is first of all, got gathered and how it's disseminated. And when do you decide to act on it? Yeah, those are great questions. And unfortunately, it's quite complicated. So CSIS is a security intelligence service, which means it collects intelligence. The RCMP is a police force which collects um, evidence. And there is a relationship um, between the two of them. We, we, we cooperate quite fully, but there, there are restrictions in that CSIS intelligence cannot be used in court because it's not collected to evidentiary standards. So there are ways in which information can be passed on, but it must be done very, very carefully. So CSIS does not do investigations that lead to court. The RCMP does. And, yeah, there are lots of people that you had, you had eyes on, and you make sure that you, you share information in a, in a, in a timely, timely fashion. But the RCMP has got the same problems that CSIS does. It's got... A, many, a million things on its plate, uh, and only so many resources to do it. So, again, I don't want to, you know, dismiss the fact that we can always do better. You can always do better at any job. Your job, my job, any job, Bill. But I do think the system works as best as it can in Canada in the sense of the men and women who do, you know, they, they, they recruit human sources, they, they, they debrief them, uh, they do surveillance and all kinds of things. Uh, we've stopped a lot of attacks in this country, and I, and I think Canadians should recognize that and, and maybe congratulate the men and women that do that on our behalf.
Well, and we've seen examples of that, too, where the, you have acted on that and, and circumvented the process uh, before any damage was done. And, and uh, as you're right, I mean, it's not as if you guys have a scorecard, but you chalk that one up. Those are the ones that uh, that don't make the headlines necessarily. Uh but uh, but obviously it means that the, the work gets done. Sharing information is is always going to be a concern, and you know, I, I guess we learned a lot from 9/11. And one of those was that there was a, a not a whole lot of information sharing uh, back in those days pre 9/11. Uh, we've learned from that, and of course we're uh, as you've told us many times. Of course, when you've been on the show, Phil, a member of the Five Eyes. Talk yeah. to us about the importance of that when we're dealing with international terrorism. It's absolutely incredible. And, you know, so sharing goes, goes two ways, right? We have domestic sharing amongst Canadian partners. So not, it's not just CSIS and the RCMP. It's Canada Border Services. It's Canada Revenue Agency. Uh, it's National Defense and other departments that have information. But you're right. The international relationships are, are key. And, and as we've, you know, as we, as you know, that we've spoken about on many occasions, the five eyes. So Australia, Canada, New Zealand, United Kingdom, and United States. This is a post-World War II intelligence sharing relationship that's the best in the world by, by far. And it works really, really well. And but there's other relationships that CSIS and its partners can engage in. There is a um, there's a part of the CSIS Act called Section 17, which allows CSIS to to engage with other partners around the world upon the agreement of uh, two ministers, public safety and foreign affairs. And that's where it gets a little dicey, Bill. So you know, the Five Eyes is everyone accepts the Five Eyes. We probably accept most of our Western European partners, the Swedes, the Danes, the Germans, the French, etc. What do you do about Egypt? What do you do about Saudi Arabia? What do you do mm-hmm. about Pakistan, where their systems of government are a little different than ours here in the West? And you, you know, I don't have to tell you about the number, again, going back to these commissions we have, you know, the Arar Commission and the Commission of the Three Canadians who alleged torture in Syria. Of course, Omar Khadr. I mean, here we are sharing with a, with a, with a, a Five Eyes partner, the Americans, and yet we were left holding the bag because of what Omar Khadr went through. Um, sharing information is always, always a very delicate thing. If you do so... Uh, on the hope and on the restrictions that it won't be used to, you know, to mistreat people. But once the information's gone, Bill, it's gone. You no longer hold, you no longer hold it in your hands, and you just put your faith in the fact that your partners are going to deal with it in an appropriate manner. But the bottom line is, you don't give, you don't get. Uh, and uh, we're not big enough in Canada to do this on our own. This is why we have alliances, both within the Five Eyes and beyond, because if we didn't do that, we'd be flying blind on a daily basis. Uh, you talk about homegrown terrorism and, and, and the swing that's happened in a lot, number of recent years, of course, right-wing terrorism and uh, the, the attack, of course, the Quebec attack in the mosque uh, some years ago as well. How flexible and how able are agencies like CSIS to pivot uh, and talk and, and switch to home guard? Because I know there's a debate going on south of the border right now, Phil, where, uh, well, I guess the previous administration didn't much believe in home ground terrorism. Uh, FBI director certainly does and has talked about this. Uh, I know there's cooperation between those two agencies that uh, go back and forth about what's going on here in North America. But, but are we putting... I, I, we're never going to have enough money and enough enough uh, man, staffing to, to be able to look after this the way I think we probably should. But is is the, the, the are the political leaders cognizant of this, and do they understand the threat here? I think they do. I, I think we have an advantage here over the Americans in that they have a real hard time recognizing domestic terrorism as an offense, and the reason for that's the First Amendment. Uh, they've got very very strong freedom of speech, freedom of thought, freedom of association. And as a result, in historically United States till very recently, the only way you could call an act of, of an act of violence terrorism bill is if it had a foreign link. So it had to be tied to ISIS or Al Qaeda or something like that. This is why they had a, such a tough time looking at what happened in the Capitol on January the sixth, 
as well as groups like you know the Proud Boys and the Three Percenters and the Oath Keepers as terrorist groups because of that First Amendment. We don't have it here in Canada. So I would say that we're able to pivot a little more readily than our American counterparts. And I know that we have. I've talked to colleagues, and there definitely is that shift going on. Um, I would caution that the, the other terrorism threat hasn't gone away yet. There mm-hmm. still is most extremist groups around the world and probably, you know, sympathizers here in Canada. Uh, those guys are still carrying out the vast majority of attacks around the world. And I get a little worried when our political masters say, you know, drop this and do that. That shouldn't be the way it works. You should go where the intelligence leads you and where your investigations lead you. You shouldn't be dropping something just because it's the flavor of the day or not amongst the, you know, within a certain government. We know that organizations such as CISIS and the RCMP are open to political influence. We've seen it. Uh, we've seen it with, with the current administration. We saw it with the former administration here in Canada. But it's never a good day when people who don't really know the business are trying to tell those that do how to do their jobs. I wouldn't tell you how to do your job, Bill, and I'm sure you wouldn't tell others how to do their job. I just hope that governments recognize that there are professional women and men that work in these places. They, they understand what they're doing. They understand their mandates. They understand the modus operandi. And they're in the best position to determine where the resources should be allocated and why. Well, as I said at the beginning of our conversation, uh, to, to get an understanding of where we are and what needs to be done, you have to understand where we came from. And uh, this book certainly does that. Uh, where can they get it, Phil? Well, thanks for mentioning that, Bill. It's uh, actually it's self-published. This is the first of my books that I've self-published. You can get it off my website, borealisthreatrisk.com. There is a link there to order it. It's only $25 Canadian, so a lot cheaper than going to Chapters or Indigo. And if they order it from me, they get it personally signed for free. Hey, excellent stuff. Uh, it's called The Peaceable Kingdom, A History of Terrorism in Canada from Confederation to Present. Uh, Phil Gursky, of course, our guest. Uh, with, By the way, the forward by uh, former CSIS director, uh, Ward Elock, too. Uh, great read. Uh, great, as always, uh, spending some time with you today, Phil. Thanks so much for this, and uh, continue good luck with the book and uh, with uh, your semi-retirement, too. <laughs> I appreciate the time, Bill. You have a good day. <laughs> you too. Take care. Phil Gursky, of course, uh, former CSIS member. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.